This is Dave Broadback coming to you from my podcast studio at home. My podcast studio. It's my movie's my daughter's bedroom. Anyway, um, the lecture you're about to hear is from a course, uh, Psychology 3717, uh, for the winter term 2017. The course is called Memory, which might give away the, the you know, the, the content is mostly memory. Um, so, uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right, uh, again, thanks for doing that stuff, Christine. That's really cool. Um, so we talked, I think we were here the last time, talking about Evan House, and he talked about it in three different ways of retrieval. Uh, yeah, this is where we talked about reflect, uh, sorry, recollecting the past intentionally, um, unintentionally recollecting the past, and how memory can show up that awareness. Yeah, that is really annoying. <laughs> I don't know how to turn that off, but I hate it. With the intensity of a thousand suns, I cannot get over how annoying that sounds. It's worse back there. Oh yeah, this is like when they have on Star Trek where everybody grabs their head like this. Original <laughs> <laughs> <Here's> series. <laughs> but somehow Kirk just wills his way of not not affecting him, and Spock, he's not affected because he's a Vulcan and his ears are. I don't know. Why would someone even have it on? Why do we have speakers? Hate everything. Uh, gotta be something here that turns it off. These little towns. Um, there's all kinds of crap up here. I don't know what anything does. Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. I'm just gonna have to somehow live with that for now. Uh, let's see. So we still make these kind of distinctions today. So here's some other attributes of memory. Uh, it can be reconstructed. In fact, memory is almost always reconstructed. Memory is something that happens that... I'm just going to talk really loudly to see if I can be over that horrible, horrible screaming whine. It's like being having small children. Um, so it's reconstructed to the point that like, we often think our memory is perfect and that when we recall things, um, we're almost like rewinding a video and that's not what we're doing. We're, we're, we... we Fill in gaps. We reconstruct events and knowledge. So memory is multidimensional. In other words, it's got a lot of different parts. And there's many forms of memory. Everything from knowing the capital of Vietnam to knowing how to ride a bike to knowing what you have for breakfast and knowing what breakfast is, which are some of the examples we used just the other day. A bit of gun. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty pacifist in this diet. That's horrible. Second class in here, too. Hopefully, people on the internet can hear this. Because it's horrible. Because um, they think we're all crazy. I got an email yesterday from a guy from Edmonton that just listens to the asking questions. So, Edmonton guy, what was your name again? Uh, I can't remember. He didn't even say it was from Edmonton, I just looked at his IP address. But, can you. Can, <laughs> That's what I do. It's my thing that I do. Uh, was it Sean, my name? Sam. Sam. His name is Sam. His name is Sam. And uh, can you hear that, Sam? Because it's horrible. Uh, so how are we to investigate memory? There are some general principles. This even applies across species. There's a forgetting curve. So as you forget things, you forget most of it in the first little bit, right? So it goes like this. Oh, hey, draw it. I forgot I can draw it. I love that. So like a forgetting curve. Okay, so across the x-axis there, that's time, and the y-axis is 
um, percent correct or amount remembered or something. And it mostly looks like this. You do most of your forgetting early, right? And then you forget less and less, but there's less and less you don't remember. The, 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 the rate of change goes down. Um, the power law of practice. This is the idea that when you practice things, it's not like twice as much practice gives you twice the outcome of, of remembering something. It's more like twice as much practice, you, like it goes up exponentially. It's a power law. And things like encoding specificity. <coughs> we remember things... Oh, here, that's the worst way. Um, we remember things... We encode them specifically in specific situations, for example, and then we recall them in specific situations. This is why I always tell students, when you're studying, study, in a, if you could, study in the classroom, you're going to have to test it. But you should study in a situation where you're uh, sitting up at a desk, not listening to music, in a decently lit room, wearing clothes like you would normally wear, etc. So those kind of things are pretty general principles in all kinds of memory. Um, we can use free recall, which is just, I'll give you a list of words, then I ask you to recall those words. We can use recognition. I can then give you, I can give you a list of words to remember, and then I can give you another list and say, circle the ones you remember. And of course, half, the one, half, half of them on the list there are ones that were on the, the list you studied, the other half are distractor items. We can do sentence verification. Now, this is a little bit different. When we eventually talk about semantic memory and how that works, sometimes we ask, is that a sentence? And we present something very quickly to you and see if you recall that it's, if you, if you can process that something's a sentence. And in fact, the more complicated a sentence is, the longer it takes for you to verify that it's a sentence. People don't get these wrong, right? If we look at if we look at reaction times here, we don't look at right wrong. Nobody gets this wrong. Everybody's going to get it right that it's a sentence. Oh, we can do priming work. So priming is when we, uh, let's say I give you, remember the thing with the coffee and the fill in the blanks? Word priming completion? That's priming. So you see a stimulus or you hear it perhaps. And then I give you a degraded version of that stimulus, and you're more likely to be able to identify that stimulus if you see it. Okay. So we'll talk about we'll, we will talk about priming for sure. Our questions so far. As long as there are questions about that noise, which I should stop pointing at because we're all just about habituated to it now. And then I pointed it out. God, I'm an idiot. Okay. There's a lot of practice effects. We know, or sorry, yeah, practice effects, so we can look at that, how much practice. And practice, while it goes up exponentially, eventually it's going to ask you. It has to. There's a lot of imaging work that's fascinating. This stuff's great. So what you do is you have people do a task, and they, you have them in a, in a PET scan or an MRI. And you see, you basically watch people remember stuff. But you, you're doing, you know, imaging the brain. 
So that's something that's being done a lot more now with sort of the rise of what's called cognitive neuroscience. We might look at the kind of errors you make. So again, I talked with this the other day, and I said, look, if I was giving you a list of words, and one of the words was president, and the words you remembered, the errors you made, when you recall or, or recognize the word, you recognize the word king was on the list. Well, it wouldn't be king, of course, because let's say king is on a prime minister. Let's say you say those are on, rather than say resident or hesitant, which drawing. So we think of the meaning, the semantic meaning, or just the sort of surface structures of how the word sounds. So by looking at your errors, we can tell something about how you have actually encoded something. All right. So that's just some very general stuff. Let's get some very general stuff about models. We won't be a whole class in memory models. But here's the one that basically everyone has learned in intro site. And it, it's okay. It's got its issues, but it's okay. So we have the sensory register. Right? So the sensory register, that's just raw, unprocessed, uh, visual or maybe auditory information. This lasts less than a second, maybe seconds, and it just, it's gone. Information goes from there to short-term memory. This is the what's called the atkinson Schiffer model, and the short-term memory or short-term store has a certain capacity and that capacity is seven plus or minus two items, meaning that for some people it's as many as nine, and for some people it's as few as five. But for most of us, it's seven. For most of us, it's seven. And if we process information that's in short-term memory, it then goes to long-term memory. If we don't process it, it disappears in seconds, too. So short-term memory is not something that is hours long, like some people seem to think it is, in popular parlance. No, short-term memory lasts literally seconds. Then that information moves into long-term memory. Long-term memory is essentially limitless in size. I mean, there must be a physical limit. Your brain, you know, there's got to be a limit, but it's essentially limitless. Information can move from short-term memory to long-term memory, or from long-term memory to short-term memory. So when I ask you a question, like what's the capital of Vietnam, and you say Hanoi, you pull that out of long-term memory into short-term memory. Note the weird little dotted line, stuff going from sensory register all the way right into long-term memory. This is a hypothetical thing that maybe this is where deja vu comes from. You know deja vu, you know that thing where you go, oh, I've done this before. I've been here before. And actually, maybe you probably haven't, but it's stuff that you just experienced has gone into long-term memory and skipped over short-term memory. That's one of the theories about how deja vu works. There's other ideas, too. Then, of course, there's jamais vu. <laughs> it's just a joke for the French people. That's, oh, I've never done this before. Uh, I thought that was way funnier than apparently it is. Um, 
Deja vu is interesting because you can't study in a lab. It, you can't make people have that experience. You can do all kinds of other cool things. You can have people you tip the tongue phenomenon where you go, oh, I know that, I know that. You know, like you play a trivial pursuit that you're, you go, ah, I know that one, I know that one. And eventually you get it. We can make that happen in the lab. That's easy. But I can't give you a deja vu experience when you come to the lab. I just can't. Right? So it's a hard thing to study. So that's a you know decent possibility. All right, question with the Atkinson Schiffer model. This is the one, of course, as I said, you ran into an intro study. Okay. Neural networks, a lot of you guys took brain behavior with the last term. You know about the idea of a neural network. Now these neural networks don't have to actually be these, these nodes or processors in a neural network aren't necessarily individual neurons. Okay? They could be, and if you guys remember from back in, remember recognizing the red triangle, right? Uh, it's not that kind of neural network necessarily. Neural networks have certain properties. They have these nodes. The nodes, the, 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 the nodes are either on or off. They have the connections to other nodes, so they're kind of like synapses. That's what they're called neural networks. So we can deal, uh, these things deal with recognizing different things, characteristics, attributes, what have you. So that's kind of like the right, you know, recognizing what a red triangle is. Or that's kind of like, but it could be about any kind of concept. Like the idea that in semantic memory of what a bird is. Well, birds have certain characteristics. They have beaks, they fly, they have feathers, they lay eggs, they are whatever, go on and on. So we could look at sort of different hierarchical levels. We go from like lines to letters to words to concepts. <coughs> and we're talking about a lot of connections here. But a lot of this networking stuff isn't actually done with people. What, what, what is done is you figure out, you think to yourself, well, how would a neural network work in a human? Like, just mechanistically, not the actual wetware. And you design a computer program that does this. And then you actually test the results the computer program gets, and you see if they look the same as the results that you get from people. If they look pretty similar, you're probably right. Okay? So neural network models are kind of interesting. There are many other models of memory. There's episodic versus semantic memory. That paper I had you read last week from Mendel Tulving, episodic memory is the memory about episodes of your life, autobiographical. Uh, semantic memory is memory about facts about the world. There's procedural versus declarative memory. Declarative memory, so this is episodic versus semantic, that's Tulving's idea. Procedural versus declarative, that's Larry Squire's idea. They're pretty similar. Uh, declarative, think about it, it's declarative statements. It's, I did this, I did that. So it's basically like episodic. Procedural is how to do stuff. So, you know, people talk about muscle memory. Uh, muscle memory. No, muscle, it's not, your muscles don't have any memory. But, we talk about procedural memory. It's implicit. You don't know that it, it's not available to consciousness. Right? So like riding a bike. Throwing a baseball, typing your password in, right? Because you know, eventually, you know, a password is something you type it in quick enough, right? 
Don't use the same password for everything, please. Just let, let me know. Just a little, little tip from me, a little security tip. Use different passwords for everything. I don't know any of my passwords. I know, well, sorry, I know one of them, the one that I used to get into this computer. That's it. The rest of them are all done with a password manager program that has a password that's like this long. I know that password, too. I'm so, I was so happy when I got this phone that I was able to just use my fingerprint to identify myself. And I type in your password. I don't know it. I gotta look it up. Oh, working in reference memory. That's an annual memory thing. Uh, working memory is the memory you need to complete a trial of a task. And reference memory is what the rules of the task are, the rules of the game. So if you had a, if you had a, a very simple task like a, Oh, I don't know. How about a tea maze? So the animal starts at the bottom there, so it's a rat, and it runs, and it has to turn right, then left. So it turns right, and then the next trial it turns left, and the next trial it turns right, and it just alternates back and forth. Very simple thing rats learn is very quick. Now, the reference memory part of this is I run down the the thing, and I turn right or left, depending on where I was last time. The working memory thing is, I went right, now I go left. I went left, now I go right. Those are separate, and they can actually be dissociated by, by damaging hippocampus in a rat, or any other. Indeed, episodic and semantic memory can be dissociated by damaging hippocampus. Same procedural declarer. Hippocampus is important. So it's certainly important in humans for episodic or declarative memory. And it's important in non humans for spatial memory, but also for working memory. So once you, if you took a rat and taught it this task, and then you removed its hippocampus, it knows to run down the arm. It knows to turn right or left. It just doesn't get it either. It's right half the time all of a sudden. Because it doesn't remember where it was last time. So these all share some commonalities. Okay. So that's just some stuff that will come up throughout the course. Some conclusions about memory in general. It's diverse and exciting, damn it. I'm trying to sell it. Though I'd encourage many of you to drop the course. Um, just to make my marking easier. I want you all to learn but I would encourage people that don't do well in school. Just kidding. What a horrible thing to say. I'm a really bad person sometimes. I'm very selfish, but I don't care. Um, it's possible to measure memory directly, kind of, with um, imaging, things like that. But it's certainly possible to do it indirectly by a number of words you call, number of errors you make, kind of errors you make. Those things, certainly, you can do the indirect measures. And there's always a place for neurological and neuroscience type stuff. And this is always a question that you get asked. It's like, where people think about, well, if we can do all this stuff by putting people in imaging chambers, why in hell do we have to have experiments doing behavior? Someone has to design the clever experiments and understand the mechanistic side, not just the brain bits, which I think are fascinating. Questions? Okay, so that finishes up the introductory bit. Now we can do history.
Okay, so we close this one. Scroll up, go there. Okay, history. Hey, last year I even taught the history of psychology. If you're in the honors program, or even the four-year non-honors program, we make you take the history of psychology because you should know the history of the discipline you're studying. And as I said here, history is probably the coolest discipline around. I, I, have a minor, I don't actually have a minor history. Had I told the registrar at Western how many credits I had, I would. I just never did. Never got around to it. It didn't really matter. I was taking history classes for fun. But I did better in them than I did in my psych classes. I took courses like, you know, World War II. There's way fewer airplanes in psychology or tanks. Now, you've been to my office, you know there's models of airplanes. That I made as an adult. <laughs> I am a loser. Um, and the other kids let me know it. So yada, 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 the earth cooled. Humans showed up. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get to the 1800s. So I've skipped a lot of history there. But, and people were thinking about thinking. When you learn to take history from psych, you'll find out that we've been, just something we've been thinking about for a long time. But we start to really get into psychology in the 19th century. Wilhelm Wundt, whose name is not Wilhelm Wundt. He's German. His name is Wilhelm Wundt. And I imagine he talked like this. Hello, I'm Wilhelm Wundt. Welcome to my laboratory here in Leipzig. I don't think he yelled like that, but I only do like three different German characters. <laughs> so I've got him with a very high voice, and he's very high strung. I, I don't know why. <laughs> he didn't actually study memory. What do you mean I don't study memory? Wow, that was weird. That was almost like I was two people there. Anybody got any chlorpromazine or anything? It's a joke. It's a little, little abnormal psychology joke there. Um, so he didn't study memory. He studied what's called psychophysics, which is uh, sensation and perception, which is great stuff. It's also a talking head song. Now, that's Psycho Killer. Um, that was just for me, apparently. But he started experimental psychology. Before that, there were people kind of dabbling. Helmholtz was dabbling. Some others were a little dabbling. But Wundt was the first actual experimental psychologist. So before him, basically, it was philosophers going, well, I know how we think, and other philosophers going, no, 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 chap. Because that's how they all talk. And they said, oh, I don't think it's right at all. I think it's more like this. How oh, radical brain. I'm going to smoke out pipes and sit your blanket and reflect. So there's a lot of that. And Wundt was like, no, it would be efficient to do experiments. Because I'm joking. I'm having a good day. I'm having fun. So he starts, that's pretty cool. And in fact, every single member of the psych department here, when you look at who our academic grandparents are, like, so I worked with Sarah Shuttleworth at University of Toronto, who worked with a guy named Glenn McDonald, who worked with Blau, who goes back to Wundt. We all go back to Wundt. Everybody in psychology almost goes back to Wundt. He was the first, he also had like 200 PhD students in his career, which is a lot. My supervisor had four. That's less than 200. <laughs> out there. Um, so he starts it up. But he's really studying sensation and perception and what, are, what we would call elemental processes, which is where you would start, right? You wouldn't start with the really big, big sort of complicated stuff. You start with stuff that's complicated but pretty elemental. 
You'd start with something like sensation perception. Why would you start with? Uh, well, we wouldn't start with you know episodic memory problem. So that's the point. We got to give him credit. I mean, I just want to. The reason he's there is because he started 1879 in Leipzig, Germany. We talked about Ebbinghaus a little bit. So all of Ebbinghaus's, sorry, all these ideas that people had about learning and memory, all these ideas that people had that were all these uh, philosophers, they're great. Things like, you know, if you say things, if you, if you repeat things, you're going to learn faster, learn better. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. That's a good idea. That's what Ebbinghaus said. And he said, you know what else? Uh, uh, let's see. If one thing is just before another thing, like A is before B. If I give you A, you're going to remember B. And if I give you B, you're going to remember A. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So people, that's how people were figuring out how thinking worked. Right? That's what they were doing. So it's all great ideas people had. But nobody was testing them. And then Foot comes along and says, we can do experimental psychology. And Ebbinghaus comes along and says, well, we can test it. And Ebbinghaus, who was born without a mouth, but had a giant beard. Um, <laughs> I love that picture of him. <laughs> I was never taught how to shave, so I never learned. He's German as well. They were all German at the beginning. Psychology was started by Germans. So here comes Herman Ebbinghaus, ladies and gentlemen, and both the behaviorists, you know the behaviorists, you know like Watson and those guys, right? You learned about that in the intro psych, right? The guys that said, we will not study internal mental events. Those guys, they love Ebbinghaus. And so do cognitive psychologists. They love Ebbinghaus. He's got to be, he can't be both. But everybody likes, everybody likes Ebbinghaus. So what he studied was nonsense syllables. Nonsense syllables. Consonant, vowel, consonant, trigrams. Ebbinghaus thought to himself, you know what? Um, I want to study lists of words. And they thought, yeah, but you know, some words are easier to remember than other words. He's right. So instead of using a list of words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make up nonsense syllables. A consonant, a vowel, and a consonant. So he might make up something like, I don't know, what's one? P-A-G, pag. That's not a word. Maybe it's a word in German. Seems too short, short for a German word. Uh, and a bunch of others. And he would memorize these lists. He apparently had a lot of free time on his hands. Because he studied himself. Um, interestingly, today we just use lists of words. <laughs> because frankly, there's a couple things. First of all, I can get a list of how common a word is in English. That's easy. Internet. Even before that, it was doable. There were lists that were out there. The second thing is, frankly, the, the familiarity of a word doesn't matter a great deal. That is way less than you might think. If it's a really unfamiliar word, it's going to be remembered really well uh, because it stands out. If it's really, really unfamiliar, uh, like you can't pronounce it, it's a sound that any that kind of word, you're not going to remember it because you couldn't tell All right. So he studies himself. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it's a little weird, you might think. Why wouldn't you study others? But it's not uncommon. Most people were studying themselves a lot of times, or just one or two other people. 
So he would memorize lists of consonant vowel consonant trigrams until they were perfect. And then he would stop, and then he would do it again with another list. Again, obviously a very exciting person. This is boring work, I would think. I, I just can't see how this is a good time. Like he would wake up in the morning and go, well, I've had my eggs and I've had my bacon and now I remember some words, some nonsense syllables for eight hours and then I would go home. I would drink a glass of sherry, I would go to bed and wake up in the morning and remember more constant about constant trigrams. I'm doing this for science! You got a little Hitlery there, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I apologize, that wasn't right. I'm sure he was this is cool. And no one talks like this. We talk about this. This happens in every species, every kind of learning event. When you learn a list, or anything, but with him, his, with him it was lists, he would then go on another list that he, he couldn't remember. Because these are hard to remember things. He'd come back to it a week later and he found that it was easier to relearn it. Easier to relearn it. If you took the, if you were to plot it like a learning curve, I just love doing it. So, we have learning on the y-axis, we have trials or time on the x-axis. The first time, it may have taken this, like that. The second time, it's like that. Which should tell you something. A steep learning curve means it's easier to learn something. Everyone misuses that, and it drives me insane. And it's funny, because I point it out to people when they say steep learning curve. And I say, you know that means it's easier. And they go, no, it doesn't. And I look at them and I say, yeah, which one of us here is the expert again? Um, and I draw them the graph. And someone said to me, someone actually said, well, just because it was quicker doesn't mean it was easier. And I said, no, I think definitionally that means it's easier. Don't you? To quote Roy from the IT crowd, people, what bastards. Um, but it's true, and that's true of every kind of learning. You ever, how many of you here have to take, uh, oh, I don't know, I bet, I bet a lot of you guys are, have just taken or are taking statistics for the 2126. Remember when you took that for the first time? A lot of you, right? Who's taking 2126 right now? First time. When's the last time I needed math? Grade 12? 2003. Oh my god. <laughs> when? When was your? 2003. 2003. <laughs> you guys, I wasn't even born yet. Well, actually, uh, most of you were born. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of really bright people here that are only 12. But. <laughs> wow. So let's say it was, minimum's like two years ago for most of you, right? I here actually took intro math and then took stats. I'm an idiot, so are you, right? We're idiots. It's the kind of thing we just do. Oh, okay, what do you read? This is great. Oh, you did that. Kids spirit. I'll sit here now. Um, oh, you did that. Yeah, that's right. What, what math do you take? I took intro. Okay, that's what I took, in fact. I took calculus for math majors because, again, eight. But I took calculus for math majors because I was doing calculus in high school. Turns out I wasn't nearly as good at it in university. I got an A. I got just 80, like 80 on the button. But I was doing perfectly until March. The full year course. Everything was fine. And then we ran into these things called the Taylor and the Clarence series. 
And I, I put my hand, I go, love the lead. And he bought this great music. It was like 200 of us in this class, they knew all of our names. He was an older guy, a uh, 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 Hasidic Jewish guy. So he had a yarmulke on and a prayer shawl and a great big beard. And his name was Dr. Kochman. And I'll never forget him because I stood up just to leave and I thought, I can't get this at all. And he goes, Mr. Broadbeck, where are you going? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I, I really don't understand any of this stuff. And I've tried, I've really tried, but I, I, I'm wasting your time and mine. I'm going to go to the spoke, which is a bar. He said, uh, well, good luck then. <laughs> it was a great moment. It was wonderful. But I got an A in class, that was hard. That stuff's hard. So we took a little math and then stats. So I didn't have a year of not taking math. But a lot of you guys had years or perhaps decades of not taking math. <laughs> Did you have to, when you, when you sat down the first time and they write something like this, Oh, that's there still. I want to remove that. No, we can, that's okay. We'll use a different color. Yeah? And they write like... Oh, God, I'm already... Ah! What does that mean? <laughs> Sum of x minus x bar squared. Okay? Sum of squares. So they write that. And then you went, oh, what the hell? Oh, summation signs. And even if you didn't know what summation signs, and I hope that they still use that. I'm now convinced though what they teach in high school is just show up. <laughs> Pretty sure, right? That's mostly what high school is. Um, but they didn't, you didn't have to relearn that, even if you forgot what summation signs were, and usually a Nadine teacher that class, and Nadine would say, you know, that just means you sum all these together. And you went, oh, right. You didn't go, I, I forgot how to do math. You got savings. I remember skating for the first time in like 12 years, a few years ago. Maybe more than that, maybe 15 years. I had skated forever. And there were skates. Then we decided we'd try to teach our son to skate. Fair enough. So I put my skates on, and I could just skate. Two, first two strides, and a little wobbly. It's like, oh yeah, that's how you skate. <laughs> no problem. Here's how you stop, and here's how you cross. Oh my God, I can skate. But it took a couple of seconds. My relearning didn't take, you know, weeks, like the first time I learned to skate. So it could be math, it could be so that's a subject, right? In school, an academic thing, or it could be something procedural like skating. It's always happened. He found that repetition was important. The more he repeated a list, which is one of the things all these philosopher guys were saying. He discovered the classic forgetting curve that I talked about earlier today. He found that the importance of contiguity, two things together, that thing like if A, a and B come together, uh, one after the other, one, like the items A and B, if I give you A, you'll remember B. And everybody said though that it went the other way too, B then A. And in fact, he found that reversal was detrimental. So it's not just contiguity, but contingency. A before B, B before C. So it's interesting, too, because you, in fact, you can just prove this to yourself. Say the alpha backwards. It's hard. Right? Z, Y, X, W. And then I start going, yeah, you see the EFG. Right? It's different with numbers, because they have an inherent uh, logic. Counting backwards is simple. But do the alpha backwards is hard, because there's no reason that A comes before B. It just does. Right? 
So he was the first guy to find it, and no one thought that was going to happen. So that's, that was pretty cool. So this is one guy discovering all this stuff. His friends called him Ebby, down in the hood. <laughs> we found uh, interference. Interference is, uh, excuse me, when two items, one item gets in the way of remembering another item. So, like, if you're remembering one list, the other list would intrude in your memory. He found the magic number seven. In other words, that you could hold seven things in sort of consciousness at any given time. He figured out, in fact, though, that it wasn't just seven individual items; it was seven chunks. So, seven bits of information that you've organized. A chunk is like the smallest unit you could. It's a very, it's kind of circular. A chunk is the smallest unit you can remember. What's the smallest unit you can remember? A chunk. So that's kind of unsatisfactory. But you can demonstrate it. You can demonstrate with phone numbers. It's very easy to demonstrate. Um, the way you remember phone numbers is, and this is going to soon become a useless example because I don't know my, I don't know my wife's phone number. My wife's phone number is call Isabel. <laughs> but because I, I literally don't know her cell phone number. Because when I can just tell my phone to call her, it does that. But there are some phone numbers I can know. And think about this. You don't learn when you, when you have a phone number, you think of it in two chunks. The first three numbers, the last four. Right? So the phone number for the university is 949-2301. And you can even hear that in the way I say it, 949-2301. They're two separate things. When you first learned your phone number when you were a kid, remember that? You had to learn all seven numbers. I remember my first phone number I remember in Toronto when I was a kid was 2235260. But I remember learning it going 22352. Two, two. Like I learned it as a yeah, as seven things. We become phone number experts. So when you go to a new new place and people you don't know the, the, the area code's always easy because it's, there's going to be one or two of them that it's going to be. But then when you learn those three numbers, the three digits, those first three digits, we know all the ones for our towns usually, right? Or most of them. But when you get to a new place, it's hard to learn the phone numbers because you can't think of that first thing as one chunk. It's harder to do. It takes a very, very little time. Or when you go to, when you go to a foreign country where they don't use three then four, I remember I was in Oxford, and I, I, somebody said, oh, ring me up later. Oh, phone, okay, thank you. And, um, oh, good, what's your phone number? 01865. Oh, wait, no, that can't be your phone number, first of all, because that's ridiculous. <laughs> and then there was another, like, seven numbers after it. You'd, you'd see trucks go by, like, you know, Nigel's Plumbing. <laughs> it's England, everyone's saying Nigel. Uh, and, and they're only making plans for it. But, anyone? No, XTC? So, and you think, Nigel's plumbing, and the phone number is this long. You can have fun with it, though. You can use psychological knowledge and the idea of interference and the idea of people not being experts in phone numbers. You can use it to your advantage and to be evil. What you do, and what do you do when you have to go call somebody? If, so someone says, call whomever. Oh, I don't have him in my, my uh, contacts. What's his phone number? And I guess we'll use the university one. So it's 705 949 
I mean, what do you do as you're pulling your two foot? Seven oh five, nine four nine, two three, seven oh five, nine When that person just start yelling random digits. Six, four, nine, eight, one, three, two, two, six. They get interference. Screws them up. You can even do it with nine numbers. Let's go orange, apple, pear, pie, chair, toes. Toes? <laughs> do it twice. Third time you should get a kick, kick in the face. But a couple times it's kind of fun. So you figure out chunky what happened? Interference. He talked about mass versus distributed practice. The idea that studying, for example, he lists one of his constant, constant trigrams list. He would study it and take a break. Study it and take a break works better than cramming. And that's, we know that for school. It's not bad, eh? I mean, you know, that's pretty good for a guy who just sat around all day remembering lists of constant or constant trigrams. <laughs> now, some dispute his importance. I've heard people say, well, he wasn't that important. He, you know, well, he had a lot of things to discuss. Those people, I believe, the technical term, they were idiots. Because you hear people talk about, oh, he wasn't that important. He had all this stuff. People hadn't discovered things. And he looked what he just did. That's basically everything we know. We can really stop now and say, memory's done. He did it already. Not quite. But I mean, that's a lot of phenomena. <coughs> that bugs me. I'm just going to put that in. Then there's William James. William James was the first American psychologist. He wrote the first psychology textbook. It is called Principles of Psychology. We're in 1890. Psychology has been around for 11 years. So that takes some guts. It's two volumes, too. And it's really beautifully written. It's actually a really nice book. His brother was uh, Henry James. He invented the term stream of consciousness. He also did the term train of thought. So there's a few things. He liked analogies, obviously. So the stream of consciousness and the idea that he said thought is personal. And it is always changing. And it never stops. It is hard to think about nothing. In fact, it's basically impossible. Because when you're thinking about nothing, usually you're saying... Okay, I'll try to think about nothing. And you're still thinking about something, which is thinking about nothing. Whoa, dude, <laughs> mind blown. Thought, he said, deals with objects independent of itself. Um, you can think about things that aren't in front of you. Yeah, you can imagine stuff. Right? I can right now imagine that it's really sunny at 26 degrees outside. It's not, but I can pretend. I can also imagine what it would look like if the sky were perfect. And it's not. Yeah. Yep. And thought is more interested in some things than it is in others. In other words, you have things you focus on. That's all he's saying there. That's, that's all he's saying there. You focus on certain things and not others. So these are sort of quotes of his... But that's all he means there. All right. So James, pretty smart guy. Um, he talked about primary and secondary memory. I mentioned that the other day. That's his, that's his thoughts. That's his idea. He talked about memory without awareness. So you don't know that you have memory. This is that implicit memory. Things like knowing how to throw a baseball. Things like filling in the blanks that say coffee.
we got a lot of stuff wrong. I will say, when you go back and read James, he got stuff wrong. But he got a lot more stuff right than wrong, and a lot of times he got stuff right, and people forgot that he even said it. If you go to grad school and you, and you read some James, which is really, usually about the only place you read James anymore, or you might if you're in a history of psych class, um, you get amazed at how much, because he was just figuring stuff out. It's pretty cool. So you got the Germans, you got the Americans, you got the French, Alfred Binet. Uh, he developed the first real intelligence test. Binet was a really neat guy. Uh, his father was a lawyer. Uh, I think he was a lawyer too, but he didn't like being a lawyer. So instead, he uh, and his father was basically in the Supreme Court of France, which is pretty cool. Um, but and Binet could have been, like he was that good a lawyer. But he, nah, I'm not interested. He was more interested in things like having people learn things in schools. This was because in the 1890s in France, it was going to be the first place in the world to have compulsory education uh, up to, I think, the age of 14. And people said, well, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be people in there that need extra help because right now, people that aren't going to school or either the poor, right, who have to work, or people that really aren't that bright and they don't they wouldn't get it together. Now you're making them all go to school. We're gonna have to find a way to spot those kids. It's a very twentieth century idea for someone in the nineteen hundreds. I think it's or eighteen hundreds. Very impressive. Um, so he used sort of naturalistic stimuli. And in fact there are memory parts to to, to, to the to the IQ test you know. Uh, using free recall. He found the serial position effect. The thing at the beginning of a list is remembered better than things in the middle, and the things at the end are remembered better. One of the things he did is he looked at the kind of errors people made. And he found out that the errors, that the, uh, at the beginning the errors you make they are acoustic. It's how the word sounds, and later on, they're semantic. So, at the very beginning, when I give you the list of words, now I'm going to ask you to remember them. The kind of errors you make are acoustic. They're what the word sounds like. Later on, if I test you a few minutes later, a few hours later, the errors you now make are semantic. In other words, you start to encode things. After time, you encode things with their meaning, not just how they sound. It's very cool. But he is a real unsung hero in history psychology. He doesn't get the do he should get, even though he developed the IQ test and all that stuff. He um, was a very neat guy. A very neat guy. So he was pretty good. He found the importance of uh, the importance affecting prose memory. What does that mean? If I give you a story, the stuff that's more important to the narrative, you remember better than the stuff that is unimportant. And in fact, we do this all the time. We know that even for things that aren't like stories. We know that for even for studying, right? When you remember stuff from a course, 
You don't remember what page of a book it's on. I know you all think you can. So that graph was in the top left corner. You're right on that a quarter of the time. There's four quarters. Um, you're not nearly as accurate. You're, you're right around chance. But the thing you do remember is you remember the, the importance of whatever that graph was trying to tell you. You also found that phrases remembered better than single words. Why do you think that would be? You're good. Yes, and why would you think that is? Take it one step further. When you remember things, we like group them together. So you can like find the meaning in a sentence. There you go. Word meaning. Yep. That's a good team. Meaning. It's all about meaning. It's easier to get meaning out of a few words than it is out of one word. That's all it is. We found the importance of what people today call gist. You know, I get the gist of it. People study gist. And what they're studying there is they're trying to find out, are people remembering what happened in the story, or are they remembering it word for word? No one remembers things word for word. It can happen eventually. Right? We can all... How many people here studied some Shakespeare in high school? It's all good. Okay, my faith in humanity is still a little bit here. So, we all studied pretty much, all studied some Shakespeare. What happens in Macbeth? Well, let's see. You got your Macduff, and you got your Macbeth, and you got your Lady Macbeth, and then there's a coup, and then uh, there's some witches, and eventually there's uh, oh, there's one part that goes, "Glams thou art, and caught and shalt be what thou art promised." Yeah, that's because I had to remember, I had to memorize something stupidly. I don't know why. Grade 12, we were made to memorize a bit of Shakespeare. The whole time I thought to my, I kept saying to the teacher, why are we doing this? Well, you should be able to quote Shakespeare. No, I should know Shakespeare. I know the story of Macbeth. I saw it in Stratford. My God, you wouldn't believe what effects they have live doing a Shakespeare play done in Stratford. It's blowing. It was cool. And in fact, the coolest thing was, you know the parts in Shakespeare that your teacher said, oh, this part's funny. And you went, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's comedy. <laughs> and you had to look at the footnotes to see what the comedy was. <laughs> Why? It's hilarious. Because the actors know how to play it. The thing is, I can remember the gist of Shakespeare plays. I know what happens in them. But I don't quote it. There's sometimes, you know, when, when next shall we three meet when the hurly-burly is done. Sure, I know that one. Because hurly-burly is just a great thing to say. <laughs> but I don't need to memorize it to know the play. I don't need to be able to memorize textbooks to talk about them. I don't memorize articles to reference them. So Binet was the first guy that talked about this. And it's interesting, too, because, in fact, he's interested in schooling, and schooling used to be, repeat this over and over. Binet had a really important impact on education. So he didn't do so bad either. So that's Binet. So now we get into the 20th century. Now we're in the last century. 
Oh, cognition, which is the, the study we know about, you know, thinking, mental processes, gets eclipsed. A big moon comes in front of cognition. <laughs> and that moon is called behaviorism. People were doing introspection. Introspection, which is thinking about yourself. It's fine if done Wundt's way, because Wundt's introspection is like, did you hear a stimulus? Yeah? Or nine! So that's, again, I don't know why Wundt is yelling. <laughs> but it, it's very precise. He had trained observers, uh, and they were usually studying themselves. Very simple events we're talking about here. Right? Very simple things. Like, was there a stimulus or was there not a stimulus? Which one of these two things is heavier? It's very elemental stuff. Now, there was this guy who worked with him named Kitchener. Now, Kitchener was an interesting character because he's a Brit um, and went to Germany to study psychology and completely, I think, misunderstood. <laughs> My theory has always been that Kitchener couldn't actually speak German. Um, it's probably not true, but... So, Titchener has people doing introspection, but he's taking it way too far. So now it's like, you think about how your brain... Think about how your consciousness works. <laughs> you can't prove or disprove data from my introspections because you're not me. So when I tell you, when I imagine how I think, and I'm pretty sure that there's a troll living in my head controlling it, can't disprove that. You might say, well, I can open up your head and I see the troll as a cloaking device. <laughs> it starts to become, it goes back to being philosophy. I'm not dissing philosophy, but it's studying natural phenomena. Philosophy is not equipped the same way science is. People get pretty pissed off at this. There's also that Freud stuff coming in. non-scientific theories. Right? I could ask all the guys here how many people want to kill, how many of them want to kill their father and sleep with their mother. And if you put your hand up, my theory is correct, and also we should call the authorities. But if you don't put your hand up, I just say you're repressing. In other words, I, I can't be disproven. So, I hate Freud. Um, really not a fan. Why do we keep talking about him in psychology? How much time do you spend in chemistry class on alchemy? Not lots. <laughs> so what comes around is behaviorism. This is basically Watson. Uh, John Watson becomes the head of the American Psychological Association in 1915. And Watson says we are only going to study the observable. In other words, we're going to only study behavior. Because okay? consciousness, and also therefore memory, by the way, cannot be deserved, observed. We won't study it anymore. We will not study mental events. Mental events are unobservable. Everything is a stimulus-response thing. Stimulus-response learning. It's all stimulus-response learning. And in fact, it got to the point where at Harvard, for example, where Skinner was, he didn't say, what's on your mind? 
The expression was actually, what's on your behavior? Which is stupid. <laughs> but, oh, I don't want Skinner to hear that I said mine. Yeah, I mean, did it save us from Titchener and people going, yes, well, what are you thinking about? Yeah, it did. But did it go way too far? Uh-huh. Now, some people did resist. Uh, the Gestalt psychologists in Germany. Ooh, the Germans. Um, Simpsons, Mr. Burns, okay, nothing. There are whole seasons of The Simpsons that were on well before any of you, most of you, not any of you, most of you were born. It amazes me. It started in 1988. Yeah. The Christmas special was 1988. It was 23. I'm old. <laughs> the first season, Homer's actually not stupid. He gets stupider every season. The best thing about The Simpsons is every season. You can't have character development in a sitcom or it's not funny. You have to have nobody, no good things happen to anybody, nobody learns anything. Why Seinfeld was so good. But Homer gets dumber every season, but somehow manages to support a family. I can't figure it out. So the Gestalt psychologists certainly uh, were talking about patterns and that kind of thing. Uh, you probably have learned about Gestalt psychology in the intro. They didn't like the reductionism of the behaviorists, the idea that everything's just observable behavior. They wanted to look at representational things. But they aren't in North America, where only a couple of them are. They're mostly over in, in Germany, in Europe. And Bartlett over in the UK, he fought the good fight. He said, no, man, it's not. You talk like that, but I can pretend he talks like that. No, man, it's not just behavior. Memories reconstructed. He was the first person to do the reconstructive stuff. He would give people stories and have them recall the stories to him. And you know what? Just like the gist stuff, right? People weren't recalling the stories word for word. They were recalling the gist of the story, what happened. People couldn't, in fact, even point out where he would give them a story, they would try to, quote, memorize it, they'd get to a point where they're memorizing, then they'd give it, he'd give them a five-minute break, and then he'd give them another story, but it's going to alter the whole thing. But only for word order. They never get that stuff. They never catch it at all. You know what they catch, though? You change the meaning a little tiny bit, they catch it right away. Way to go, Bartlett. Or maybe President Bartlett from the West Wing, but I can't do a Martin Sheen impression. So we're gonna, I just made him into a guy that talked like this man. He talked about how memory was, a, was construction and reconstruction. And today we say that. And he's doing that in the 20s and 30s. So he, he resisted. But mostly in North America, we all just fell into line and said, yeah, okay, fine. Behaviorism, yay. By the way, behaviorism did some great things and it saved us from Titchener and those people. It saved us from becoming philosophy again. But it went way too far. One more slide. So, in the 50s, psychology starts to outgrow behaviorism. People talk about personality or style of remembering, style of doing. People talk about motivation. So these things start to crop up. And this kind of personal psychology, motivational psychology, people go, oh, it's not just behavior. People did linguistics. One of the things that really changed everything was when Skinner said, learning language is just stimulus response learning. And that's when people went, wait, dude, no. No, 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 no. 
No, 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 no. There's no way language is that simple because I can teach anything language. And you can't. It's a special human thing. And information theory comes out of the war. Information theory is basically early computer science. It looks like it's simple, simple like solving the Enigma machine. That's not that simple. But simple problem-solving kind of things. If they're problem-solving machines, that's what these early computers are. And that also affects psychology because people look at it and go, oh, I see. It's not just some very... Or, sorry, I can look at information and how it's processed. Maybe I can do that with people. All right, any questions? All right, take a little... Uh, Pack it in for today, and we'll finish this stuff up and go on to the next bit on Wednesday. Thanks, everyone. on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dr. Dave Brodbeck's Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to match them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something but if you didn't I unless you're one of my students I really don't care um, the music by the way for each uh, song for each uh, uh, episode <laughs> lecture uh, is uh, available they're all podcast uh, like pod safe music so if you want to uh, find out about the bands there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback uh, if those links don't work just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out um Often I put links, uh, actually, in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.